On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks. I'm Amy Wright. Glad you could join me because I've got a great artist on the show today, and I'd hate for you to miss out. It's Parker Millsap, one of the most soulful and perceptive songwriters that Oklahoma has ever produced, and that's saying something. I hadn't seen Parker since he recorded in our studio in support of his 2018 LP release, Other Arrangements, so it was really great to reconnect and discuss his brand new album, Be Here Instead. He said that this was the most fun he's ever had while making a record, chasing unpredictable sounds and that special magic that's always a challenge to find. But I think he's done it. I think he found what he was looking for. It's a strong record with honest messages to convey. You might even call it inspirational. I had a great time talking with Parker, learning about his creative process, and I'm happy to share that talk with you right now. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. Hey, Parker. How's it going? It's been a while. I'm great. How are you, Amy? Very good. Welcome back to Diddy. We know you've been in the studio before, but it's exciting to see you. I mean, we've all kind of been apart for the last year. What have you been up to holding down the fort? Uh... Yeah, right at the beginning of quarantine, um, like the the month or so leading up to the pandemic, uh, shutting everything down, um, I was planning on making a record and I was like rehearsing with the band and stuff. Um, so in June, a few months into the pandemic, but, um, you know, pretty soon after we were able to get tests, um, went into the studio. So that's how I spent, you know, the first few months of uh 2020 basically the first half i was you know working on the record and rehearsing and writing and um and then recording it so but by july we had mixed and mastered and all that so since july i've just been playing guitar (laughs) was it really nice i know you're sort of a newlywed i mean was it nice just to sort of have the time to not tour and hang out yeah it's the first time in my adult life that i've been home for uh well, you know, at first it was like, well, it's the first time I've been home for four consecutive months, but now it's the first <laughs> time I've been home for a consecutive, uh, coming up on a year and a half now. So it's been, yeah, really nice. Um, and about the time that everything shut down, my wife also started working from home. So, uh, it's been amazing. We just get to hang out all day. Um, I mean, she's working, I'm practicing guitar, which I guess is work for me. Um, and yeah, we get to have breakfast and lunch and dinner together every day. That's um, really been a blessing. You know, I think I've talked to a lot of people who feel very similarly. And, um, you know, while there, there was all sorts of craziness that goes on with a pandemic and, and things you can't do, there were some silver linings that we all experienced that, hey, you have to take a break. It's not your choice anymore. You have to do it. Mm-hmm. And so now you can just sort of sit back and relax and enjoy the ride and be with some people that you care about and enjoy spending time together. You know, that is if you get along, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, luckily, uh, my wife and I get along really well. So <laughs> so that works out. <laughs> that, does, that is a good thing. 
It's been good to have some time off. Um, I don't think I realized until a few months into not being on the road that it was time for me to take a, a break. You know, um, I wouldn't have wished that it would have happened this way, <laughs> but it did give me that perspective of like, oh, this is what it feels like to slow down. Um, and, and this is something that's worth doing. Well, I think a lot of musicians that I've talked to have said that one thing the last year has taught them is there's a lot of facets and other things you can do. So you can put out an album, you can tour, you can also do some things online and have concerts and reach people that you wouldn't have reached normally. Cause even when you tour, you can't hit, every spot you know yep you're trying absolutely. to do the best you can so there's there's other ways now that you can engage with your fans and i think that's mm -hmm. something that's come out of this as well yeah i think that a lot of that stuff will continue into the future um it's you know depending on how you do it it's a lot more cost effective to do a show from your basement or something than to try and go out on a big tour so well it's not the same experience and i think everybody prefers to be in the same room with the person that's playing the music. Um, it's, it's been cool to yeah see all these other different ways to experience music pop up over the last year. So I wanted to go back a little ways to when you got started. Let's go back to when you were really young. And we're going to get mm -hmm. to the album because it's Be Here Instead. And I want to talk about that as well. But I thought it might be fun to kind of go back to, is it Purcell, Oklahoma or Purcell? Purcell. Purcell. I mean, you can call it Purcell if you want, but <laughs> <laughs> but it would be wrong. That's okay. Purcell, Purcell, Oklahoma. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Purcell? Uh, I mean, it's a small town in the middle of Oklahoma. You know, I didn't. I spent my entire childhood there, so I don't really have anything to compare it to. Mm. Um, I find it hard to even compare it to Nashville, where I live now, or anything like that, because it was a different time and I was in a different place, and I didn't. I didn't know much of the world outside of that. Um, so I, I'm grateful to have grown up in a place that was kind of isolated. And um, basically I had a lot of free time that I feel like a lot of kids and cities and stuff don't get um, because there's, I, I've just noticed that in urban areas, there's much more impetus put on success and like uh, achievement, I guess. And not that, I mean, those are great things. Success and achievement are awesome. But I feel like sometimes kids need free time to figure out who they are. And because pretty early on, I realized like sports weren't quite my thing. You know, I did it for as long as I could, but that was like the main cultural force in Oklahoma is, you know, football and baseball and basketball, at least if you're a dude. What did you play? Uh, I played baseball from like age four until about 14. And then when I got into seventh grade, I did, that's when like school sports started. So I did a year of school sports and I did, let's see, football, baseball and wrestling. Um, and it was just not good. You know, everybody <laughs> else was, everybody else was hitting puberty and growing and I wasn't. So I was like, I'm tired of getting hurt and I like playing guitar more. So <laughs> I'm just going to stick with that. But because I did that, you know, I was in band. So like I had music going on in band and like I was going to football games to play in the, the marching band and stuff. Um, but it also, because I wasn't doing sports all the time, like a lot of my peers, um, I had a lot of time to just play guitar and listen to music and read books and start writing songs. So really grateful for it. What drew you to the guitar in the first place and how old were you when you started? So my dad 
actually both my parents are like music fans. You know, I grew mm-hmm. up in kind of a, I don't want to say a religious home, but we went to church a lot. You know, it was like a, it was a big part of our, our culture uh, growing up. And so there was always music around and there were guitar players that I would see playing music, but then also I, we listened to a lot of secular music, but not like top 40 radio. It was more like blues stuff and like some singer songwriter stuff. Um, so the first record where I was like, what is that? And learned it was guitar was this ride cooter record called Boomer Story. But my dad used to always listen to it when we would go fishing. It was just like when we would go fishing, that was the CD he would put in. And I just fell in love with it. There's a song called Crow Black Chicken. That's just, it's a kid's song. <laughs> I, I just feel, it feels like even when I hear it now, I'm like, no wonder I fell in love with this song. Um, but yeah, the guitar sounds on that song, just kind of like, wow, I want to do that. I want to make that noise. And uh, within a few years after that, I convinced my parents to buy me a guitar. So I think I got a guitar when I was seven. That's young. Were you, were you in a small guitar or a full-size guitar at seven? Yeah, I've actually, I've got it upstairs. I don't have it with me, um, but it was a three-quarter size classical guitar, you know, like a $99 guitar. It's what my parents could afford. Um, and I played the hell out of it for a few years trying to teach myself. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> they got tired of hearing that. <laughs> and uh, they paid to get me some lessons. So when you first started playing for other people, what kind of music were you playing? Was it blues-oriented or what, what were you playing? Uh, most of my early experience actually playing for other people was uh, in church. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, we had like a pretty big church band, piano and drums and bass and a guitar player and an organ, um, a choir. And as soon as I got good enough to play like five or six pretty basic chords and understood like the concept of a capo and like, you know, how <laughs> to put that there. And uh, there was this guitar player named Bruce Clark who uh, kind of showed me the ropes. He, he played guitar and his uh, son, Stephen played bass. And so they let me just go down there and play along, you know, and he'd be like, put the capo here. And then he had a hymnal that he had written all the chords in. Um, so just like follow along, put the, you know, it said capo three, play it in G, you know? Uh, and for the first probably year, two years, I, I wasn't even plugged into the PA. I was just, playing acoustically down there. Nobody could hear me besides me and, you know, Steven and Bruce, but, um, what a great guy that he lets you do that. That's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, every, I mean, that's, you know, it's a community. It like church is a place where music can happen absent of commerce. It can happen without any of the like ideas of good and bad. It's just like you get up there and you play for some greater cause. And it's not about being the best at it. It's about, playing music, make a joyful noise. Um, so I, I, yeah, I feel really lucky that I got to like grow up playing music in that context. Um, it made me love music for music and not for, I don't know, whatever uh, all the other external benefits are to playing music, like money and your name being known or whatever. Um, yeah, I feel really grateful to have that experience. Did you sing in the choir? Uh, I didn't sing in the choir, but I sang along. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up going to a church in the South. It wasn't really Pentecostal, but sort of borderline like that. And mm-hmm. um, there was some verse in the Bible that said, you sing and make music from your heart. And so everyone you know, was supposed to sing. It didn't matter if you could sing good or you, could, you sang bad. Everyone was supposed to sing. So yeah, I, I grew up absolutely. singing in the church, and that's, that was my first experience as well is uh, singing in church. 
as loud as I could. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that's what's great about it is it's um, music is a great uh, unifier, and church, you know, like there's so much that you could talk about church, the good and the bad, and you know, politically what it's done and socially what it's done, but the for me, the core of church was always the music service. Um, and being in a Pentecostal church, it was almost like uh, hmm, the way that it was framed is like when you praise God with music, you're inviting the Holy Spirit into this place. And being in a Pentecostal church, a lot of uh, a lot of the experience of going to church had to do with basically reaching ecstatic states of mind using music. Like, I wasn't able to draw this line until much later, but it's very much ritual magic. (laughs) You know, it's like we play, we play the songs, we call the spirit down, the spirit fills us. And then we dance and sing and we uh, speak in tongues you know, that kind of thing. Um, So the, yeah, I just got really lucky to see the spiritual power of music pretty early um, and getting to participate it. And, and that it's not a, it's not like, it wasn't like, okay, up there's the musicians and like, we're clapping for the musicians. It was, we're all musicians and like they're helping us hold it down, but we're all participating. We're all reaching for the spirit together. Um, so while there's a lot of that I could leave behind, um, I still believe in that concept that music is like reaching for something greater together. I agree. And there are so many musicians I've talked to that came from that Pentecostal background. I think part of it is it's not just playing the music, it's the emotion in the music yeah. that you don't get in every s- situation. And that is mm-hmm. really, um, that's really prominent in the, in Pentecostal faith. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so a lot of that's just freedom. It's like, yeah. please rip it. <laughs> <laughs> like, just sing as loud as you want. Sing yeah. whichever harmony you feel like singing. Uh, nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to tell you to be quiet. Just emote. So how old were you when you put out your first album? Well, I put out like a little four song thing when I was about 14 or 15, had like a high school band and went and recorded, I guess, an EP basically. And then, you know, burned CDs at my house and like wrote the album name on it and like sell it to friends. Um, but the first uh, album that got any sort of press or anything was Palisade, which I released when I was, I had just turned 20, I believe, when I released Palisade. Yeah. Yeah. And then trying to do it about every two years since then. So was that a life-changing experience to put that out and then go tour against it and have people know who uh, you are? Yeah. I mean, it's all been really gradual. You know, mm-hmm. I was playing shows and stuff leading up to making that record. We, I was playing shows um, and already trying to do it without having a proper record out. Um, but then once I had that record, uh, that's like a, a business card. You know what I mean? You can go give it to venue owners. Like, Let me play here. You know, listen to this. You'll like it. Um and recording that album was really fast. We did Palisade in like two days. I think it was mostly live, just like guitar, vocal, and upright bass. Um, so yeah, it kind of gave me a, a place to start from. Um, and it gave me a, it gave me like a foot in the door at a lot of venues in like Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, and eventually that led to going to Folk Alliance and getting into the house concert scene. So yeah, it really, really helped set things up for me. Have you ever been to any of the dance halls in Texas? Yeah, I've been to Green Hall. Yeah, they're sort of fascinating to me because I think it's this culture that exists there that doesn't exist anywhere else. And I know there's a movement to try to save them, but I love the fact that 
it's so Im- uh, embedded in the culture there that that uh, there's live music and there's dancing and you know it's been that way for many many years. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of people who who host house concerts down there that like I wouldn't have been able to get here had I not basically got all that practice performing and you know and getting paid a little bit and uh, it gave me the it gave me like the confidence like okay I can do this you know like once I could. Uh, you know, move out of my parents' house and pay my own bills just from doing music. It's like, okay, wow, it's, it's working. <laughs> so when did you move to Nashville? Uh, hmm, it's been about six years ago now. Maybe, yeah, get coming up on seven years ago. Um, I think we moved to Nashville the week that the very last day came out. So, oh, maybe it's just five years. I don't know. <laughs> I've, done, I've done a lot of touring since then. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of calling cards that you mentioned earlier, uh, there you have a big calling card in that Elton John gave you an enormous compliment, basically saying that he saw you when you were playing with Sarah Jarose and that you would have re- renewed his faith in music. There's not a bigger compliment, I don't think, than that coming from such an enormous star. What was yeah, that like? Yeah, uh, uh, that it's surreal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Elton saying that, like getting to meet him and then kind of subsequently getting to like go see his show in Vegas. Um, I saw his show here in Nashville. I got to hang out with him a few times. Um, he's an inspiration. He has restored my faith in music as well. Um, he's been a superstar <laughs> for like twice as long as I've been alive, you know, or almost. <laughs> Um, but seeing his enthusiasm for music, uh, and how it hasn't waned, um, that's really inspiring to me to know that you can be like at that level for that long and not get jaded by it, you know, and like all of the, and uh, like, especially from his position, all of the frustrations of like fame and superstardom, you know, that's like a whole other weight on top of just wanting to be a musician. Um, so to see the way that he's been able to navigate that and stay, uh, interested and interesting and promote other artists. Um, th- that's inspiring to me. That's like the kind of artist I think every artist wants to be, you know, engaged and uplifting. For sure. And he continues to be creative and taking on new projects and you have yeah. to love the music and sort of the journey just to continue to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And he, and he loves all kinds of music. Um, I feel like every time I've talked to him, the conversation is kind of ranged from like, you know, stride piano players of like the twenties and thirties to the hip hop record that came out a month ago. You know, he's, he keeps up with all of it and he loves all of it. That's, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't draw lines around genre, you know, Elton John's not just listening to classic rock radio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm sure he listens to whatever he wants to listen to at this point, but um, let's talk about your new album. Let's talk about, be here instead. And what does that mean, be here instead? Hmm. It means a lot of different things to me. And that's, that's kind of why I chose it. Uh, it's a line from the song on the record called Now Here. Uh, I wrote that song pre-pandemic. Um, kinda, I was just learning about meditation and kind of how to do it. And I'm not going to say that I'm like a perfect meditator and meditate every day because that makes you happy. That's not like, I'm no, (laughs) I'm not, I don't have that discipline, but I've learned to incorporate certain meditative techniques 
into my life uh, as a way to chill out. Um, it's easy to get worked up. We're not designed to absorb as much information as is thrust at us every day. So having some techniques to mitigate that stress response to all that information uh, has been really important for me, um, especially through the pandemic, um, as most of my normal ways of having a release have kind of been taken away. You know, I can't go play a show to a big crowd and get that like ego boost from that. Um, so that's kind of where the title comes from, but it also, you know, I wrote it pre pandemic and then recorded right, like kind of in the beginning of the pandemic. And by the time I was naming the record, we were like well into it. And, uh, I just thought that that title spoke to both where I was at, uh, in my own personal journey and dealing with, you know, anxiety and modern life. Um, but it also spoke to where everybody is at, uh, being forced to be home. You know, it's like where, whatever you were planning on doing in 2020, you're not going to go there. You're going to be here instead. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of people, including myself, have had to just analyze your home situation. It's like, oh, now I'm here. Do I like this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if not, like, what don't I like about it? Like, oh, I can rearrange the furniture or, you know, whatever it is or uh, have more meaningful conversations with the person that I'm living with. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where the title comes from. For me, it has a bunch of different connotations. Do you think that meditation helps you be a little more creative just to loosen up the brain and, and let it flow as opposed to, like you said, there's a lot of stressors going on. And when you're stressed, it's really hard to be creative, I think. Mm -hmm. For me, what a lot of meditation and mindfulness and really like at the core of all that's gratitude um, for me, that's like what I try to center my uh, thinking practice around. Um I think that what I've learned is what meditation has showed, shown me is uh, kind of how to slow down a little bit and see my thoughts as they're coming in from where, where do thoughts come from? I don't know, but they happen. And when you can slow your mind down and see them come and go, you can make more <laughs> rational uh judgments about your thoughts um so for me there i have a very strong critic in my brain that prevents me from getting things done because i'll write something and i'll be like ah, not good enough or um ah, it kind of sounds like something that's already been done and so it's easy to just give up on an idea when you listen to that that mean critic <laughs> you know there's a I feel like a lot of us have this critic that lives in our head that's way meaner to us than we would ever be to somebody else. So learning to recognize that, which takes slowing down and seeing your thought rather than just experiencing it and reacting, you have the thought come into your mind and then you can, if you can slow it down and look at it, you can say, well, that's not very nice. <laughs> you know, and like, well, I wouldn't say that to somebody else. So why am I saying that to myself? So just try to ignore that thought and keep moving forward with this idea. Um, yeah, that's that's one way that it's helped me. Uh, just like a tool for taking the pressure off of yourself. Um, I find that's really helpful. Like you can you can always go back and edit, but the the crux of creativity for me has a lot of times been like trying to catch an idea while it's still hot. You know, um, 
without judging it too hard and abandoning it. Because if you, if you can catch it and work with it for a minute, then you can at least for me, like I can get most of a song built out like pretty quickly. And then I can always go back and change words or tweak melody, but getting that, that initial spark and, and getting it down um, is, is like the critical moment. I can see that. I would think it'd be hard to decide, is this a good song or not a good song? Because it's yeah. just you deciding that. And then I can see where you would just sort of rethink it. Not just you, but anybody would re rethink mm-hmm. it. Um, and like you said, be a little bit harsher on yourself than someone else would be. How did you choose the songs for this album? Were there multiple songs or were you writing them as you went along and said, this is a song I want for this album? How did you, how did you do that? Um, so between other arrangements and recording this record, um, I had written a decent amount. Um, this was the most songs that I've ever had uh, going into the studio. So when I started having conversations with the producer, John and yellow, he was like, send me demos. So I'd send him a few demos and he would send me some feedback and we'd rehearse a little bit. And then I'd send him some more demos and he'd send me feedback and we'd rehearse them a little bit and make changes that he suggested. And uh, by the end of it, I think there were like 29 songs that I had sent him. And, you know, some of them, he was like, Hey, this one just isn't there yet, you know? And by this point in the process, if, if, if that was the note, like, I don't feel like this one's there yet, then I would often just like take whatever energy I would put into finishing that one and put it into making a different song better that, that already felt like it had momentum. So yeah, we narrowed it down to probably, I think it was, we narrowed it down to 14 or 15 tracks before we went into the studio and then we recorded 14 of them. And then the 12 that ended up on the record are the ones that just felt like they went together. Um, most of the songs on the record have an introspective uh, feel or theme. And that kind of ended up being the unifying quality of everything. There are a few songs that were uh, a little bit more like storytelling, more in the way that my past writing had been. But these songs all felt like they were uh, coming straight from me instead of from like a third person storytelling kind of thing and you had guest vocals from Erin ray oh yeah she sang on two tracks on the record she sang on in between and in your eyes at the time she lived like a mile from me <laughs> actually most of the guys in the band on this record lived within like a mile of me uh so that was really cool just like call and be like hey come work on this like okay that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was fun great to see everyone working together and it's, it must be nice to live in nashville and have all these musicians sort of like you said they're an out they're a mile away yeah it's kind of incredible how many musicians and not just how many musicians but how many like wow good <laughs> musicians <laughs> live really close to me uh a few years ago i was fortunate enough to play uh the newport folk festival and i was doing a show but there was like this backstage area where everybody's hanging out and this crew of dudes were talking and i don't remember how but i got into the conversation and uh found out that they were Cheryl Crow's band. Like Cheryl Crow's band was just like, hang- she wasn't there, of course, <laughs> but uh, her band was just like hanging out to, to see the, the shows that were happening at this venue. We all got to talk and eventually somebody's like, where do you live? And they're like, oh, I live in Madison, you know, off such and such road. And I was like, no, you don't. That's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, no, I do. And then like, so does he. Oh, and so does he. Oh, and that guy lives in Inglewood. Like there were all these people in one room in Rhode Island <laughs> that lived within like two miles of each other. It's kind of amazing. Um, yeah, that's something I, I've toured so much uh, since I've lived here that I didn't 
quite realize i think the the density of insanely talented people here and uh yeah i'm starting to find those people it's pretty awesome yeah you can go out in your front lawn and start playing a few songs and all the musicians will come out of their houses and <laughs> <laughs> not uh, maybe <laughs> yeah maybe or maybe they won't i don't know no i'm yeah. just kidding um so what what was the sound that you were uh you were kind of going for in this album you know the first few records i made uh going into it i had a sound in my mm-hmm. mind and by the time the record was finished it never sounded like that um and part of that is like me not knowing how to articulate what i wanted to mm-hmm. sound like but part of that's also just the recording process and there's i mean you can you can pick the instruments you can pick all that but then like the room how you're feeling that day yeah what mics and preamps the engineer or producer decides mm-hmm. to use um all of those things have an effect on what it eventually sounds like so for me on other arrangements it started to be this way but for this record it especially was this way it was like i don't have anything in mind i just want to write good songs and see where they lead me um yeah so th- this record had a much more like exploratory approach to both the songwriting and the recording in a way like a lot of the recording was done in the way that records have been made for a long time like we would we got all set up in our ISO booths, the drums are out in the room and we play the songs live. And then I would go back and like put another guitar on it. And then Dan would do some string arrangements on top of it. And then I would sing over that. Um, So there's still very much a live band feel to a lot of the record because it was done that way and then fancied up. But the writing of it was so different that that forced the performances to be different. Like a lot of these songs I wrote on piano and then when I brought them to the band, I had to figure out like, okay, well, I've got a, I found a piano player that can do way better than me. So like, now what am I going to do on guitar when he's playing the piano? You know, I've written this thing and practiced it on piano, but now it's like, that doesn't feel right. So guitar it is. Um, and then some of the songs were written on iPad, you know, like some of this stuff was purely digital, like digital synths and digital drum machines and all this stuff. And then I wrote the song that way, but then took it and tried to figure out like, okay, how do I perform this song in the way that I know how to perform, which is live with a band. So I think that's something that lent this record to different sonics. Like one, having a keyboard player was a huge deal. And Ryan Connors, who plays on the record, is like a genius. So that was nice. (laughs) Um, He just came up with really great textures and keyboards can add a lot of texture that guitars and bass and drums just can't do. and then a lot of it was uh, John Aniello's approach to recording. The producer, he uses a lot of like guitar pedals and stuff plugged into microphones. And he has all these funny little like tricks that you don't really, you can't really pick it out. Like that, oh, that's what that is on the record. But once you know it, every time you hear it, you're like, ah, yeah, I see what you're doing, John Aniello. <laughs> um, and, and the way that he mixes, like I feel like a lot of my records in the past, and this is just a, just a stylistic thing between producers and I don't necessarily prefer one way or or the other, but a lot of the records I've done in the past, I feel like we're shooting for uh, maybe a more realist sound where, especially because it was maybe a little more acoustic based, what's coming out of the speakers uh, seemed to be like geared towards making it sound exactly like it sounded in the room or like a hyper detailed version of that. Whereas, and Yellow's uh, recording and mixing approach 
has like some weird mystery to it. I don't know what he's doing, but like there's this sauce that he puts in the brew that does something. It's like got some magic dust on it and it, it's just a different approach. Um, but I really, I really loved it. I loved hearing you, you were talking about, did I have a sound in mind mm-hmm. and all of that? I loved having a song trying to play it as well as we could, but then hearing the ways that the producer manipulated everything to give it this like slightly off kilter or um, mysterious air that um, I haven't quite experienced from, from a producer yet. So that was, that was really nice. Were you surprised at how some of the songs turned out? I mean, you had something in your head a little bit, but then, yeah. you know, as you point out, there's this witch's brew and little sauce that goes on in the studio with the engineer. Mm-hmm. And did any of the songs turn out a little bit differently than you originally thought? Yeah. <laughs> all, <laughs> all of yeah, them? All of, yeah, pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um, but that's great. Like, that's something that this record taught me, too. It's just like, this is about the process. And like, the end result is the end result. But that's not what I need to be focused on. Um, for me, it should be about being in the moment with the song and like, does this feel good? Does this sound good? Does this inspire some sort of emotion in me? Am I having a good time? You know, if I can check all those boxes, then it seems much more likely that the listener can check off all of those boxes um, rather than does it sound exactly like I had in my head? You know, that's just frustrating because how could you ever know? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> it's... Um, so I guess the song that's the most different though is damn it. Um, damn it started out as a ballad. It was like had eight chords in it and like this fairly convoluted melody. And um, I sent it to John and he was like, Hey, I really like these lyrics, but something about the music isn't working for me. Uh, try to make it like a U2 song. So no challenge there, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's a great song. So, I listened to it. It's got it's it's it's, <laughs> it's a you. big song. It's big. Yeah, exactly. Well, and at first it was like at first it was big, but it was a ballad. It was slow, mm-hmm. and it only had about half of the words that it has now. But he said, "Try it like a U two song." And I spent a few hours like with my delay pedals trying to pretend I was the Edge and Bono combined. And I was like, "I'm I can't do that." Um, so I sent him a message and I was like, Hey man, I can't do YouTube, but I think I can pull off a Lou Reed. So (laughs) I re instead of rewriting it, like a YouTube song, I rewrote it like a Lou Reed song. So instead of eight chords, now it has two. Um, and instead of a convoluted melody, I'm basically just talking the lyrics for most of the song. Um, but because I sped it up and simplified it, that gave me a lot more room for lyrics. So I ended up writing the whole second half of that song many months after the first half was written um thanks to you know just one little like nudge from the engineer he's like try it like this and i was like i can't do that so i'll try it like this and that ended up becoming damn it and now it's like probably my favorite track on the record it's um, a great track yeah it has just like this big crescendo through the whole thing um really really proud of that one so will you be touring for this album anytime soon yes yes we're looking at september and october um you know as long as cases don't spike and people keep getting vaccinated and all that it looks like it's going to happen so yeah i think we're doing the midwest in september and the east coast in october i might have those backwards but yeah we'll be out touring it okay in the meantime i have read that you've taken up watercolor painting yeah Yeah, here's one (laughs) ah nice 
Uh, I think there. Here's one. This one's watercolor and acrylic. Awesome. Are those lips? Uh, I was trying to do like a Monet water lilies thing. But, oh, water lilies. Yeah. Uh, but I can see that. My wife says they look like spaceships coming in across <laughs> the sky. So I think I'm going to go with that. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, here's this. This one's like the smaller one I showed you, but this is like, that was the study. And this one's the one that actually got done. That looks uh, like a mosaic. Yeah. Just pencil, watercolor. Um, yeah. here's a, here's like a landscape. I mean, this stuff is silly, but there's some eyes like the sky's looking at you. Um, yeah, it looks I'm, like a face. It kind of yeah. looks like a face. Yeah. You've got the eyes and almost like the mouth. I see the mouth part the way uh -huh. down the mountain uh -huh. and a little bit of a thing coming maybe, down through. Yeah. Maybe this is a beard. I don't know. That could be a beard for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, here's some more, I mean, they're, I do mostly abstract stuff. My, my wife's really good at realism. Like she can make stuff out of Sculpey. Like she has these little salamanders she made that like <laughs> from a few feet away, you'd think they're real. You'd think there's just a salamander sitting there, but I have none of that skill. So most of what I do is just abstract because it's more fun for me. I don't get so angry at myself for not being <laughs> able to draw, <laughs> draw realistically. But yeah. <laughs> so is it relaxing? Yeah, usually. Or yeah. frustrating. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's relaxing. Um, and it kind of like doing this, at, doing watercolor and just painting art in general, because I don't have any training in it. Like I've spent basically my whole life at this point playing guitar. So doing something creative that I have no skill <laughs> with has been really freeing um, and allowed me to approach music in a way, like I was saying earlier, like meditation, it's allowed me to approach music in a way that's uh, less concerned with being great or perfect or whatever, and more concerned with expressing myself and exploring and trying to find, uh, yeah, new combinations of things that excite me, you know, um, like, you know, you start with like watercolor, like watercolor and then like add some acrylic on top of that and it's like oh that's cool like what if i had an acoustic guitar that's really natural sounding like like a watercolor but then there's a drum machine with it that has that acrylic like modernity and hard edge to it um anyways like it, conceptually it's helped me a lot well i am, am envisioning your art opening at some point parker so <laughs> <laughs> well once there's once there's enough stuff that i would not be afraid to show people maybe <laughs> it's looking pretty good and um listen we, we wish you the best of, with the album the album is be here instead and we wish you the best with that and hopefully we'll catch you on tour come visit us in memphis as always the door is open and can't wait uh, to get back to, to memphis take care yeah you too thank you we hope you enjoyed this conversation with parker Millsap. be sure to check out his new full-length studio album be here instead which you can find right now online at parkermillsap.com. And as always, don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Waiting out the rain In the city no one knows where you've been What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? 
Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.